0: I love to tell the story of unseen things above. Of Jesus and his glory. Of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story. Tonight, I would uh, ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And, and I would also ask you not to freak out. Because uh, we're, we're not going to do the whole book and we're not going to get into the crazy, difficult parts. We're going to look at the, the earlier, earlier parts of that book, which have some clear teachings about uh, various churches and different things that go on in those churches, good and bad. And uh, try to relate those to, to us, to this church, and, and, and relate them to our individual lives and our walks with God. There's nothing new under the sun. People are people. And the things that these churches struggled with in the first century are, are some of the same things that we struggle with today. Taking a big uh, picture of the Bible, we'll we'll look at uh, this this chart. If you take a 300,000-foot view of the Bible, and we think about Genesis to Revelation, we've got some things that happened in Genesis with the creation, of course, and then the, the marriage we have. Adam and Eve, first marriage. And then we have the fall on the garden, the whole deal with the fruit, right? Where they uh, they ate of the fruit uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there's a sense in which Satan wins there. And and so then we have all these things with being cast out of the garden and, and all of the many, many things that I'm not listing on this chart because it's very small. But then as we get into the book of Revelation, through all these trials that the church goes through, in the end, Satan. Loses. These things unwind. See how it's sort of shaped like an X. They start and then they come back and they realign. Satan loses. He's cast into the, the bottomless pit. And we have the marriage of, of the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, the church. And and that marriage is consummated. And then we have this new Jerusalem, this new Eden. We have the, the river of life and the tree of life there, all situated again, which harkens back to the beginning. So, there's some beautiful symmetry uh, of Genesis and revelation. Now we're not going to cover all that in in revelation, but I uh, wanted to share that um, as we as we zero in on the portion that we went to look at now, looking at uh just an overview of revelation, and again, we're not going to go through all twenty two chapters, but the first few chapters talk about the seven churches, and that's the part we're going to look at this evening in detail and then the next few uh the next three sections really talk about these three cycles of judgments and there's the, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out these judgments upon the earth and, and those uh, are really interesting to study and I would if you haven't recently done that I would encourage you to do that and the most beautiful part then is at the end the, the finale where we have all these things wrapping up with all the victories uh, with Christ coming victorious and um, and then the new heavens and the new earth coming out of heaven, and this, this, this Garden of Eden scene that I alluded to earlier. But let's focus uh, here on these seven churches. Now, these are sort of like little micro epistles, these little letters at the beginning. The whole thing's a letter to the seven churches. And it would run as a sort of a, uh, a circular route, perhaps uh, going along what was already a pre existing um, route to follow these churches. And each of them has, has some things written to them. Now, John is, on, uh, is in exile on the island of Patmos. John is in exile in Patmos for his faith, for the word of God. And because of that, he's being punished and put in exile. And he receives a prophetic vision there on that island while in exile. And that's what this letter is. That's what the, the book of Revelation, how it comes to be. Each of these, just to think about in real terms, you know, they're uh, between 30 and 100 miles away from each other. I was about 50 miles away from you guys. So we might think of it in terms of that, as far as the distance physically from these churches one to another. And, and again, these, these churches were, were real churches, real people. And they had, each had strengths and weaknesses and challenges like we, we do today. So let's take the advice given to them by Christ and consider how it might relate to us as a church and as individuals. But first, let's look at some keys from chapter 1. So chapters 2 and 3 are where these these little seven messages are contained. But chapter 1 has some introductory material that's then drawn on, and it's a little bit of symbolic uh, imagery, so I want to kind of clarify that first so that we can recognize those as we see them in our study. Okay, so um, if we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John... To the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, this, this sort of starts out like a lot of letters, like a lot of Paul's letters. John, you know, John is the writer to the seven churches who are in Asia. Grace to you and peace, this greeting. But what I want to zero in on is uh, the key of seven. The number seven is a very important revelation. It's this number that indicates completeness, perfection, uh, things, things relating to God. And so that's why I believe that seven churches... Were uh, selected. Now, if we look back at our, our map briefly, we might notice, well, there's Colossae down there. We, we know there was a church in Colossae. We have a letter to them elsewhere. But I believe seven churches were selected to make this theological point about this, this number seven and this completeness. So these are, again, uh, real churches, but I think they're to be taken as typical. These are sort of typical churches that, that we can then apply to ourselves throughout time. And here we have this seven spirits of God. So if you look at what it says, it says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. What we're talking about, the eternality of God the Father. He is presently, he forever was in the past, and he forever will be in the future. So that's what that's referring to. And then the seven spirits, I believe, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying there's seven of them, but again, it's the symbolic number the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ the faithful. So we have this idea of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all here being identified. So recognize that seven spirits. We'll see that again in in these writings. Verse 10, John having this vision, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it To the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are the seven churches we'll see. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches, and we'll see that explicitly pointed out here in coming verses. Now, why would the churches be symbolized as a lampstand? Maybe think of the little kid's song, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. We need to let our light shine. The church in the community should be the light. People should see Christ living in us by the love we have for one another. So that's how that's symbolized. These these lampstands represent the churches. And also some of this imagery we see with um, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man from Daniel 7 is drawn here with the way that the Son of Man, Jesus, is portrayed here in his glory. Looking at verse 14, the hairs of his head were, were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His Feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So his eyes, being of fire, indicating his deity and the fact that he can see the truth. And as we see what he has to say about these churches, they don't pull anything over on Jesus. He he sees them for what they are, and he sees us for what we are. He sees me for who I am, good or bad. These bronze feet we see indicated here, the glowing metal imagery that we would, might see in Ezekiel 1 if we were going to do a more comprehensive study in Daniel 10, this Son of Man and the heavenly realm with all of these glowing, glorious things. But what I want you to get here is to understand that the eyes of fire and the bronze feet relate to, to Jesus here. We're going to see that again. Verse 16, In his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth, came a, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. So the seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, as we'll see, and this word angel uh, can mean messenger, or it can mean heavenly messenger, as we often think of the word angel. And so it might be a little unclear, uh, I, I'm honestly not sure what I have to think about this, if if he's uh, You know, talking about the idea that there's an angel assigned to each church, or if perhaps he's talking about perhaps the minister, the preacher of of each church, that 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 would be the messenger under consideration. But let's not get hung up on that. Uh, These are addressed to the churches, is the idea here. Ephesians chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 4, we get more of this idea of the sword of the Spirit alluded to here, which is the Word of God. So when we think of the Son of Man with this... The sword, a two-edged sword from his mouth, that's the idea. Jesus holds the stars and has the sword from his mouth. And we'll see these, these things again as he addresses the churches. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is the first and the last. He is God and is eternal. Uh, Living and died alive forevermore, we think of this idea, certainly, that he died on the cross, and then he he rose again, and he, he lives forever, eternal in the heavens. Recognize these things as pointing to Jesus, as we'll see again. Moving on to verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, a lot of the book of Revelation doesn't give you little keys like this, but this, this part, we are given the interpretation of these symbols so we know for certain what's intended here with these stars, the angels of the churches and the lampstands, the churches themselves symbols solved. The rest of the book is harder. Let's look at Revelation chapter 5, jumping a bit ahead here. Basically what I want to draw from this in chapter 5 is that we see Jesus as as the one who's able to open things, and he's related to David. We see there halfway uh, that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we'll see this concept again of, of him who is able to open and, and, and the, the um, one related to David. We'll see those coming up. Chapter 19, toward the end. Here we see Jesus portrayed as faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and true, coming to defeat all of his adversaries. And we'll come back to this passage again as an invitation. And to the angel of the church in church name, write the words of, and then these different things that we just studied, these attributes of Jesus are used variously there. And then he'll say, I know your works, and you do these good things. But I have this against you. And then he'll Call them out on the things that they're doing wrong, with some exceptions from churches that are, are exemplary in their behavior and don't have things to be rebuked for. And then do this. And some common things are repent. If you're doing the wrong thing, you need to repent. You need to get back on track. You need to overcome with Christ. We need to conquer with him. And then he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's, that's in every one of these. He, he who has an ear, let him hear. And that's, of course, some things that Jesus said while he would walk the earth as well. To the one who conquers, I will bless in various ways. So that's, that's the introduction. So let's look at the, the church in Ephesus and what, it, what the Jesus has to say for the church in Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We know what those are the angels of the churches and the churches themselves. Jesus is intimately with the churches. He's he's not remote, He's, he's there among them, among us. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Good job. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Or some translations say, you have left your first love. This church had some good things said about it. Are we taking a stand against false doctrine? I hope so. Uh, but, But even so, have we left our first love? Or have we abandoned the love we have for one another the way we ought? Remember when you were first baptized, when you first believed the zeal you had, the excitement, the relief to realize you were a child of God and that you were saved, your sins were washed away. Would Jesus say of me, Matt, you have left your first love? Would he say that to you as we think back when we first believed? Have we grown? Are we growing? Are we just checking boxes? I showed up at church, you know. Or are our hearts truly dedicated to God? So Jesus gives instructions then to the church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, think back to where you were and to where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, no longer be recognized as a faithful church, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. If we have left our first love, then we need to repent, just like the church at Ephesus. We need to get back to basics, back to our first love. We need to get our hearts right with God. We need to endure to the end. Let us look now at the church in Smyrna, who receives no rebuke. These guys are doing great. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words of Jesus. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know you are struggling with these things in the world, but you are rich toward God. You're doing the right thing. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews And are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt. By the second death. The second death is referring to the lake of fire, eternal torment in hell. The one who conquers will not be hurt by that. There are references here to false Jews, and this is because many of the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. The followers of Christ are the new, true Israel, and the Jews who reject Christ. And hold on to the old law are false Jews, the synagogue or, or church of Satan, the adversary. So it's good that they're, you know, standing up to that. But what is all this stuff about suffering and be, being faithful unto death? When I, I, I grew up in the church, and I would hear this verse, and what I thought that meant was keep going to church, and you'll die someday because you'll get old. And, you'll, and, and that's good. Be faithful until you die. That's not, I mean, we should do that. But he's not saying that here. Uh, you know, we think about some of the things the Christians suffered. They, they were burned at the stake, and they were torn by animals and, and killed in, in horrible ways. The church at Smyrna was faithful. Jesus had no rebukes for them. But they were undergoing persecution, and there was more to come. They had poverty. You know, part of what that entails was they were ostracized from the society. Well, you're Christians. You don't follow, you don't worship Caesar, and you don't do all these false gods that we like to do. Well, you're, we're not doing business with you. And these people would lose their jobs and their livelihood. They would literally be in poverty for their faith and slandered by these Jews, false Jews. Be faithful unto death means to expect to die for Jesus. That's what it meant for them. Be prepared for that. This is a faithful church, and you know we, we like to think about happy endings. Why should these folks that are doing the right thing have a hard time? The happy ending is being with God forever. Do we live our lives? with that as our goal, to live with God forever? Or do we struggle to invent our heaven on earth with the various pleasures and things that perhaps are selfish? I think that's something to think about. It's a lesson I've been thinking about as I consider the struggles of these churches and the reality of my life. So uh, let's think on these things. Take a serious thought and remember that be faithful unto death. To The church at Smyrna meant be ready to die and be killed for your faith. Let's look at the church at Pergamum. Verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth, right? The word of God. Jesus, Jesus' words will judge us in the last day. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this church needs to be holding fast. They are holding fast. They're not denying the faith, even in the face of death with Antipas here. This is Antipas's. One of our fellow Christians there at the church at Pergamum, who apparently was killed for his faith and didn't relent in his faith, even in the face of that. But some in the church there at Pergamum were caught up in sinful practices. You know, we mentioned this Balaam, referring to this Old Testament example of those leading uh, the Israelites astray. So it's not the same guy, but it's that idea here. There's someone in the church or in the community that's leading some of the Christians astray to get caught up in this idol worship garbage that they had rampant in their in their area. They were getting involved in the temple prostitution. The sexual immorality is a reference to that sort of thing. Eating, eating uh, food sacrificed to idols is, is the idea of participating in the sacrifices to these false gods and and eating them as part of that worship, that false worship. These Christians were getting involved in that. And someone was leading them in that. And then there's these references to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Not entirely sure what that is, but fill in the blank on whatever false doctrine of the day we struggle with. This church had some who were holding those false teachings. A little diagram of the city of Pergamum, the high place, the high place in town, the mountain where they would put their, their temples. You know, we have pictured there the Temple of Trajan, which was the, one of the Caesars, the Caesar worship that was so uh, important as we think about the book of Revelation and what they were struggling with. This uh, pressure to, to worship Caesar went on throughout the empire we have the temple of Artemis, we have the temple of Dionysius, and the altar of Zeus, which, which some have uh, tied to this, this place where Satan's throne dwells. That may be particular where it was, but, but really all of it. It's terrible. There's this, all this rampant false worship, false gods, idolatry. But what do these Christians need to do about these problems in their midst? And all these things are representing the blessings that we'll have by being faithful and forever being with the Lord. They need to repent. If we're getting tainted by participating in sinful worldly practices, then we need to repent too. We need to stay with Christ and conquer because He wins. And we won't win unless we're on His team. The church of Thyatira. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Eyes like a flame of fire. He can see what's really going on in these churches and in our lives. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first good job you're growing but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. He has the eyes of fire. He can see what's really going on with us. This church had good works and were growing. But this Jezebel, again, kind of like Balaam, there's this symbol of Old Testament evil. Uh, Of course, she was the queen with Ahab, one of the worst kings ever. So the idea here is that someone, either in the church or in the community, I get the sense someone in the church is leading Christians to do this same stuff they were doing in Pergamum. Worshipping idols, getting involved in the sexual immorality associated with idols and and the temple prostitutes there, and honoring these false gods by participating in these sacrifices. You cannot honor God and demons. Choose this day who you will serve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned, what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself, have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So some in the church here with these problems, some are faithful, while some are off the deep end and engaged in worldliness. That, that happens in churches today. But we need to hold fast. And we need to try to strengthen those, to bring them along as best we can. The church in Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So the seven spirits of God, we were relating to the Holy Spirit, the seven stars, these angels and the churches. So, Jesus is saying this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis, people thought they were doing the right thing. They had a good reputation. But they weren't what people thought they were. They were asleep. They were dead, asleep at the job. We can't fool God. We need to wake up. We need to shore up what we have and strengthen it. We build from here. We need to stay faithful. Conquer by staying with Christ. He wins in the end. And we win if we're with Him. Philadelphia. There's no rebuke for Philadelphia. Another really good example of a faithful church. Into the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. They have little power. They're just people. But they're following God. And they are able to do things for God. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So we have, again, this faithful church with no rebuke. They have the conflict with the local Jews, again. But what is the open door? Uh, I've always kind of thought this had to do with the open door of opportunity, and that very well might be what's going on here. We think of the opportunities in this community. There's websites, and there's neighbors, and there's family members we can talk to, and all the ways we can share the gospel. It's an open door. Nobody can stop us from doing that. They can try, but the Word of God will not perish. But I'm not, I'm not sure. I had another thought about what that refers to, and if we look at Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we see this imagery used there as well. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And then this goes into some more of the imagery in the book of Revelation. And and I wonder if Part of the idea here with this open door is that Philadelphia, in their faithfulness, they are set to enjoy the blessings of heaven. And the open door of heaven here in chapter 4 perhaps brings that together. Nobody can take away or, or shut that door. Uh, so either way you want to take that, uh, leave you to study that further. Moving on with Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast, you faithful church doing the right thing. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Just like Peter talks about how we're being built up like living stones. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. In the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Hold fast, stay with Christ, He wins, be on his team. This New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, this is as we would read toward the end of the book. this is this idea we talk about heaven we we want to die and be faithful and, and spend be forever with the Lord, it's this idea of this new Jerusalem. We want to be part of that. Laodicea. No praise for Laodicea. This church does not have anything good said about it. Let's read here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. John chapter 1. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and, and, and created. it was involved in the creation. All of these things we think about Jesus. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, physically versus spiritually. I counsel you to buy from me gold, spiritually, refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see this church is a disaster but Jesus doesn't give up on them now this cold and hot thing if 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 you're expecting a refreshing cold milkshake or a nice mug of hot cocoa those are good things But instead, you get a mouthful of rotten milk that has sat on the counter for a week, and you're going to be sick. You're going to spit it out. It's gross. We like good stuff. And this is how God feels about us when we're like the church in Laodicea. You know, as as Americans, one of our values is to be self-sufficient. We don't need help. We're the richest country on the earth, the richest country that's ever been. Physically, those are true statements. But spiritually, look at our culture. Spiritually, America is wretched and poor and blind and naked. Instead of stuff, we need God's riches. But what about us? We're part of this culture. Are we being tainted by those things? Does God, like the church at Laodicea, does God want to spit us out? We need to be introspective and think about these things. And think about how we're honoring God. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He doesn't give up. Jesus is not giving up on this church. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus doesn't give up on these churches. And even if we have some struggles, he's not giving up on us. We need to be zealous and repent if some of these things describe us. We need to conquer with Christ. You know, Jesus knocks, as it says here. He's he's knocking to come in. He's knocking on the door. He's not barging in. He's requesting to to be with us. Will we answer the door? Will we answer him? Or will will we die in our sins independently? Because we want to be independent. Rejecting the dependence that we ought to have on Him. I said I'd come back to this verse, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And if we know John chapter 1, we know who we're talking about. This is Jesus the Christ. In this book of Revelation, and in fact, in life, life is a spiritual war. Christ forever was and is and forever will be. And he will win. Is he coming to judge you with the sword of his mouth? Or will you accept his blood to wash away your sins? Will you avoid the second death that we've talked about, this lake of fire? Will you be on his side? Will you despise his blood? That's another choice. Count it as a common thing. Will you be faithful? Will you be faithful to the point of death? Are you willing to be faithful to the point of death? That's a heavy question. <laughs> Will I? And we're fortunate to, to usually not contemplate it that way because of the, the, the great country we live in with freedoms that we have. But do we have that level of faith? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as we looked at this morning, this passage from Acts 22:16. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. and Wash away your sins calling on His name, if that's what you need to do. I love to tell the story Twill be my theme in glory To tell the old, old story Of Jesus and His love